Matthew Modine romances Daphne Zuniga in medical school. While Paul Newman romances a much younger Lolita Davidovich in the great state of Louisiana. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. Ah, yes, the legendary Doris Day with a great song called If I Give My Heart to You, which was featured in our second movie today. Welcome to Out of Touchdown. My name is Mike DeKalb, and on the other end of the social distancing Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, how are you doing? I am doing good. I was hoping you were going to use Starship for this episode. I almost did. I almost Mm -hmm. did. I mean, I do... Those of us that are children of the 80s, we do love the Starship, but I don't know what you thought about that song, but that is a total 80s end credits song, wasn't it? We'll get to that when we discuss yeah. the soundtrack of Gross Anatomy. <laughs> but um, like I said, we're rolling along. We're actually coming to the end of 1989, and we'll discuss it on the next couple of episodes. But 1990 begins a new era, I think, where um, Disney's going to start doing more animated films, and they're actually going to open up yet another studio for live-action films. But we're going to focus solely on the Touchstone films. And our last two movies of 1989... Um, we talked about it off air, and I don't. I want to be kind of nice, but I found myself a little underwhelmed by both of them. Not that I had huge expectations for either one, but I really thought there was there was more that they could have achieved. But I don't know, could have been better. Uh, let's just start with the first one. Uh, it was released on October twentieth of nineteen eighty nine, and it's called Gross Anatomy. Touchstone Pictures presents Matthew Modine. Are you a medical student? You got a pain or something? They thought he couldn't cut it. Why are you here? I look good and white. I have a suspicion he's going to be a real weak spot. But they were wrong. You guessing? Am I right? Yes. Then I wasn't guessing. He would become the very best. I got worried you guys were making progress without a leader. I'm the group leader. That's what I mean. Well, your best be good enough. Never had any complaints. Gross anatomy. Now, once again, we've got a situation where we have multiple writers. There are five different screenwriters who get credited with the screenplay, four of those writers get a story credit. And so, I mean, I think the stories that I'd heard about this movie is that it bounced around. One script was written. It got some rewrites. Nobody passed. They passed on it. They couldn't get it going. So uh, I think to begin the focus, we're going to start with a man named Howard Rosenman. And it looks like he had a producing career, which went all the way back to doing TV movies in the early 1970s before transitioning into features later in that decade. He produced a movie called Sparkle in 1976, which was about a R&B singing group. I, I read that, I believe it was remade in, the, in 2012, I believe, with Whitney Houston. Um, he also got a story credit on that movie, as well as producing it. And then he also produced the Barbara Streisand movie from 1979 called The Main Event. Uh, well, the story goes that Howard Rosenman met Jeffrey Katzenberg in 1984 and pitched an idea to him about medical students based on his own experiences in medical school. And that was good enough to get him a development deal with Disney. Unfortunately, the idea of the medical students it, it didn't go anywhere. Like I said, it sounded like a script was written 
and then it just got it got put in turnaround or no one picked it up and they couldn't really get it made. Um, we talked about this on previous episodes that have multiple screenwriters, but there's a thing about the word and or the ampersand. And as best I understand it from Writers Guild credits, the word and means that it's two people who don't know each other. Like if it's if it's Chad and Mike, that means that I ghost wrote or I did the script doctoring for Chad's script. Whereas if it says Chad ampersand Mike, we wrote it together. And so for Gross Anatomy, three Howard Roseman gets a credit with two other guys and it's ampersands between both of them. And it's Stanley Isaacs and Alan J. Gluckman. Stanley Isaacs was making this was his uh, writing debut. And then the only thing I noticed that Alan J. Gluckman had writ- had written a note was the movie Ruskies, which I vaguely remember that one. That sounds like right up your alley, Chad. Do you remember Ruskies? Uh, I believe I just watched that in the last two or three months. <laughs> I just it's like it's, it could it could be the rescue. It could be Iron Eagle. It could be Red Dawn. There was just so yeah, many of those Cold War movies. Right? Yeah, it's Lee uh, Lee Phoenix and Peter Billingsley and a Russian. Uh, washes up on the shore of, uh, I believe, Florida is where they are, the Keys. And, uh, yeah, it's they, they actually become friends with the Russian soldier and realize that, you know what? Just because we're in the middle of the Cold War and you're from Russia, we're from the United States, we're actually not that different when we actually sit down and talk to each other and get to know mm-hmm. one another. And interestingly enough, that's, that's going to come up here in a couple minutes, and I'll tell you why. Um as far as the, the other story credit, there's a fourth writer who has the story credit on the movie, and his name is Mark Sprague. And just like Stanley Isaacs, he has no credits to his name at that point. Uh, the script is still in limbo until it gets a rewrite from a man named Ron Nicewanner, and he gets the screenwriting credit. He had written a movie called Mrs. Sofell, and then he was also coming off writing and directing a movie that Chad had talked about on our show called The Prince of Pennsylvania. What was that? What? Why did you watch that one? That was Fred Ward. Was it Fred Ward? It was Fred Ward and the uh, you know the matinee legend Keanu Reeves. Uh. And, uh, yes, and I actually just rewatched that one as well because we we had brought it up in a previous episode and I found it streaming. And yeah, it's uh, Keanu kidnaps his father. They're working in a mine together, and he kidnaps him to try to convince him to sell some land and. I mean, it's it's an interesting film in that it's not your typical story, but I, I think you really have to probably like either Fred Ward or Keanu Reeves to fully appreciate or be of the 80s generation. And if you don't like Fred Ward and Keanu Reeves, I don't think I want to know you. I don't know. Um, the last note I have on the writers, we go back to Howard Rosenman. He goes on to serve as the producer on Gross Anatomy because at the time – he was the co-head of film production at Sand Dollar Productions, which was founded by Sandy Gallen and Dolly Parton. Chad Smart, did you realize I was watching it? Gross Anatomy was produced by Dolly Parton's company. I did not know that until I did research on this film. And let me say, I... Well, I guess if you're going to have a movie called with the word anatomy in it, maybe Dolly Parton <laughs> is the person to produce it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I know that, that I'm sure that company did Rhinestone, Straight Talk, and all of her movies, but yeah, apparently they were doing other stuff. Uh, and I did notice that earlier in 1989, Howard Roseman did produce a movie called Lost Angels, and that, that movie's actually fresh in my head because uh, last week I watched the amazing documentary on Apple TV Plus called The Beastie Boys Story, and in it, Adam Horowitz shows clips from Lost Angels and just rips it to shreds, and he's like, don't watch this movie, it's terrible, it's terrible, 
And so I actually kind of want to watch it now that I've seen that name pop up again. was kind of funny. I'm trying to remember that because I, I know I've seen that movie and I'm trying to remember what the plot is. And because I think Adam Horowitz did like two or three movies in a few years, if if I'm thinking correctly. And uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm curious now to watch the Beastie Boys documentary to find out why he didn't like this movie so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting because he talks about how the Beastie Boys is sort of unofficially broken up after they were fighting with Def Jam. So he comes to L.A. to make movies. And then while he's out there, the other two Beastie Boys join up with them. They happen to meet the Dust Brothers and then they make the greatest album of all time, which is Paul's Boutique. So it all worked out in the end. But uh, another name that has popped up before on our show, the director of Gross Anatomy is Tom Eberhardt. Now, again, I, I read this keep, seems to keep coming up a lot with these touchdown movies. I read something that he had replaced another director but yet in all my research i could not figure out who that first director was just maybe it was just sort of hearsay um but as we've talked about eberhard before he put together quite an impressive resume he had directed the night of the comet uh, a movie that chad referenced before Lori loft the movie called the night before uh, and then his also most with movie, keanu reeves keanu reeves there you go uh his most recent movie before gross anatomy was the 1988 movie without a clue which is the um michael Caine playing sherlock holmes i believe mm. right um, the reason we talked about him before was because he's the uncredited writer on Ernest Saves Christmas. And uh, we also mentioned that he had worked on the Steven Spielberg short film Amblin back in the late 1960s. Okay, so we need a cast. Uh, our lead, is Matt, as we mentioned in the opening, is Matthew Modine, who was working steadily in films in the 1980s. He had roles in movies like Private School and The Hotel New Hampshire. And then he breaks out in 1984 with a movie called Birdie, starring opposite Nicolas Cage. Not familiar with that one, but it, certainly, it seems to be very critically acclaimed. Um, he was also in that movie, Mrs. Sofell, that we had talked about a minute ago. Vision Quest, of course. Uh, and, then, and then he also did Full Metal Jacket with Stanley Kubrick in 1987. His most recent role before Gross Anatomy was the 1988 film Married to the Mob, which I remember him from that. I think that's probably the first time that I ever saw him. I mean, do you remember when Matthew Modine entered your consciousness, Chad? Well, it would probably be, be with Vision Quest and then mm. and then Full Metal Jacket. And uh, you don't have it listed, and I can't remember what year it came out, if it was before or after this. But he did a, I believe it was a TV movie called What the Deaf Boy Heard, or something along oh, those lines, yeah. which I think is a, from from what I remember watching it is a fantastic movie and i would highly recommend checking it out if you can find it anywhere well to me it's funny because vision quest to me is just a madonna music video that's that's all i remember i just remember is it crazy for you i think is from that soundtrack mm -hmm. and that's i've never seen that movie and i just know that song and then full metal jacket i didn't see till much later so i think married to the mob was the first time i saw him and then i went years without it and it's like i don't really know a lot about matthew modine which is kind of why i was interested in watching this movie i had read that he studied under the great acting teacher Stella Adler. And what I thought was interesting, talking about uh, Cold War movies with Russians, he turned down the lead role in Top Gun because I think he said he was making a movie and he was dealing and he was he got to meet a bunch of Russian people. And he said they were just like me. And then he came back to America and he had the script for Top Gun was waiting for him. And he just did not agree with the politics of it. He said he thought it was too much of a hoorah America thing. And he was like, the Russians are just like us. And so who knows what would have what it would have turned out to be if he had uh, taken that, I guess. Um, also mentioned in the opening, Daphne Zaniga, who was who had worked in film throughout the 1980s. Most notably, she was in The Sure Thing. She also had a, a small role in Vision Quest, apparently. Uh, she was in a movie that I really enjoyed that I saw at the New Beverly in Hollywood several years ago called Modern Girls. 
And I can't remember, Chad, were you with that at that one with me or no? I I believe so because that's the one with. Um, Is it Virginia Madsen? I think Virginia Mad- and um, guy from just one of the guys. Oh uh, yeah, Clayton. Clayton. Uh, Clayton Roner. Yes. Yeah, that's the one. I I I, I, won't, I don't want to go too far in the story, but um, I was working in MGM at the time, and MGM must have owned the owned the company that had released Modern Girls. MGM, MGM was buying up a lot of small companies back then. And I went to the screening, and the guy's like, "I named Phil. We both we love Phil, Bill Blankenship from the New Bev, and who was a friend of mine. And he would recognize me at these screenings. And I guess there was the writer of Modern Girls was there to do a Q and A. And so he 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 knew that I worked at MGM, and he told her that Mike from MGM is here. And so during the Q and A, the writer made a joke about the fact that oh, there's a, there's some executive from MGM here." Maybe we can get Modern Girls put out on DVD. And everyone was looking, and I kind of had to like wave my hands and be like, no, 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 I'm just a worker bee. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, it's a eh, fun story. Um, of course, Daphne Zuniga, I think, is most well-known from playing, what is it, Princess Vespa? Was that her name? In Spaceballs, mm-hmm. which uh, I just showed that to my wife recently. i got to be honest, Chad, that movie does not hold up. Uh, I mean, I loved it as a kid. I think it's probably the first movie that I ever quoted. I can remember being in a schoolyard and, and saying, comb the desert and stuff, but Man, I watched it just maybe a month ago when during the quarantine, and I did hardly ever laugh at all. Yeah, that's how I feel about a lot of Mel Brooks films. Like, I think Mel Brooks is, a, you know, unquestionably a comedic genius in terms of a lot of uh, his work. But for some reason, I think his his films are also very much of their time. And, yeah, and and I say this as probably like the hand one of a handful of people who has never enjoyed Blazing Saddles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I love Young Frankenstein, but yeah, yeah, Frankenstein Blazing Saddles, good, yeah. I need to see that one again. I saw it in a film class and I was like, ah, it has its moments. I think if you like Westerns, you probably appreciate all the spoof of it. Um, of course, Daphne Zuniga's last role before Gross Anatomy was The Fly 2. I forgot that she was in that, which was released in February of 1989. Um, honestly, I think we saved the best cast member mm. for last because you've got Christine Lottie, who started out doing TV movies in the 1970s before her feature break in the 1979 Al Pacino film Injustice for All. She had starred opposite the king of touchstone, Richard Dreyfuss, in 1981's Whose Life Is It Anyway? Uh, she was in a really interesting sort of, I'm going to call it a biopic because it's a fictitious group. The movie came out in 1982 called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one or not, but it's like Diane Lane is like in an all-girl punk band. And they go on tour, and it's just—it's. It's, I think it was directed by Lou Adler, who had done, uh, who had done the Monterey Pop Festival, and and uh, I think he produced Rocky Horror Picture Show. He's one of the guys that's always at Laker games, but uh, it's a very interesting movie. I recommend that for people. Um, of course, 1984, she did Swing Ship with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, and got herself an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, she had done the 1986 movie Just Between Friends with Mary Tyler Moore and Ted Danson. And she had gotten a lot of critical acclaim with 1988's Running on Empty, opposite River Phoenix. Uh, her most recent role before Gross Anatomy was in, in April 1989. It was a very limited release movie called Miss Firecracker, which starred Holly Hunter. I'm not overly familiar with that one. I know so. the title, but I was going to say one note that I made while watching this movie is, who is Christine Lottie? Because I know the name, but looking at her filmography... I don't think I've seen any of these films that you've you just rattled off. And oh, really? Now, I, I figured maybe you would have seen Running on Empty, maybe. But no. no, I haven't seen that. But but you know, looking, at it, I'm like, okay, I know what character she plays, and I know the basics of that story. But yeah, Christine Lottie is just one of those 
names that I, I know for some reason, but I have no idea why I know it. Well, and I think her her sort of notoriety in recent memory, I guess, it was about twenty years ago. Was she was on Chicago Hope for hmm. for several maybe years. that's it. And there's that one year, I think it was in ninety either I think ninety eight, maybe ninety eight, ninety nine. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress, and she was in the bathroom. Okay. That's, and that's it. Jack, Jack Nicholson went up mm-hmm. and made some, and then Jack Nicholson won for as good as it gets later that night. And he made some joke about Christine Lottie mm-hmm. and the bathroom or something. And, and yeah, but that was, yeah, she comes rushing up to the stage mm-hmm. and she, and she said she was in the bathroom bed. Anywho. Um, okay. So as we do on the show now, I, I like to break the that movie down into positives and negatives. I gotta be honest with you, Chad, I didn't have as many positives <laughs> on gross anatomy. So I was actually going to let you start. Do you have, can, can you start us with one positive that you had from gross anatomy? Yeah, I've got a couple of things written down, and one of them I think kind of goes against your uh, one of your negatives that I see listed. But so I'm going to start off. I, I think the show, the movie showed the stress of medical school, and mm-hmm. as someone who uh, was not did not do well uh, in school because of testing, uh, I, I didn't like studying. I could not imagine having to go through the amount of you know. Uh, pages to read each night and study and everything that these these characters go through i you know hats off to every medical professional out there because as long as you're not dr nick riviera you have <laughs> you have earned your stripes hi everybody <laughs> uh no yeah and I, that was one of my positives chad I, I really thought that it highlighted the frustration of studying for such an important profession like i mean i we talked about it on the dead poet society episode i love movies that take me behind the walls of something I can't see. You know, like period pieces are a good example. Show me something that's set in a boarding school in the 50s. Show me something that's set in Civil War times. And Gross Anatomy, why I was really excited to watch it was because I don't know anything about medical school. I I, I mean, I'm trying to think if I have, I have friends who, who are doctors, but they're more PhD types, not people who actually are medical doctors. And I don't know about you, whenever I've had checkups with my primary care physicians, I don't usually don't go into their medical school history you know i'd be curious next time i go to my doctor i should ask him hey you ever seen that movie gross anatomy with matthew modine and just get his thoughts on that but i did like that like i said it was it was interesting to see something that you're not overly used to seeing and they talk about it at the beginning of the movie like here's how many like you said how here's how many pages you got to read here's how many terms you got to know and i mean you're just like is that what it's like because you just you have the utmost respect for the people that have gone through that. I mean, it ends. It, it could be a fault later in the film when it gets to be, uh, you know, a little too overly dramatic. Like I thought it was very bizarre that there were scenes where actors were walking into the anatomy lab and seeing cadavers and they're all cringing. And I was like, wait, you're medical students. Like, shouldn't you be ready for this? Or is it just no one's ready to see a cadaver, right? I mean, I I mean, I actually saw cadavers when I was in. I took anatomy class when I was in college and got to see them. It was a little unsettling, but it wasn't like the people, you know, the the people that are squirming in this movie when they see the bodies. Right. I think it depends. You know, if you're going to medical school and you're doing a you know a class, you would expect to go and see a cadaver. Whereas if you're an English major and you walk into English 202 and there's a cadaver there, that might be a little unsettling. That, I, I could believe that, yes. Yeah. I mean, the last I'll say, I remember when we saw the cadavers in our anatomy mm-hmm. class, the one thing I couldn't get past is it looked like beef jerky. It was very, <laughs> the, the, it was all just, the, the muscle tissue was all it was all brown. It was just, it was this, it was, mm-hmm. yeah, beef jerky. Anyway, um, the main positive I have from this film, and I kind of alluded to it 
when we were talking about our casting is I think Christine Lottie is terrific. She she I think she's a very underrated actress. And this is one of those movies where she ends up outshining the leads and, and she steals every scene that she's in. Like, I mean, at a certain point, it feels like they try to make it out so that the professors are supposed to be like really, really evil. I don't know. But at the same time, like it's like they're medical student prof- uh, professors or medical uh, school professors they should be really really strict and she is fantastic in it and i don't know if you read uh, read that b- piece of trivia that you know in the movie she's got a limp and i was like oh that's kind of interesting they just gave her an interesting character um trait and they said that she had put her wedding ring in her shoe and that's so that she wouldn't step on it so that's that that's how she got her limp that's how she acted through <laughs> it but like you said you weren't overly familiar though what did you think of christine lottie in this film no i think she was good and my you know second positive for this film is to me i thought the characters felt real i felt um and and, you know well i'm gonna kind of contradict this a little bit with my first negative but but the characters i i got wrapped up into their um into their story into what they were going through Mm -hmm. but yeah and i I don't know if i'm gonna go ahead and mention it here because you had left it off you, you didn't mention him in your uh, rundown of the cast, but Todd Field plays oh, yeah. um, Matthew Modine's roommate who, you know, going back to uh, uh, Dead Poet Society, he's kind of the um, Thomas Leonard Scott character. If I have my... Robert Sean Leonard, you mean? Yes, that one too. Thomas Everett yeah. Scott played drums in uh, the, the <laughs> O'Neaters. But uh, yeah, uh, but you know, he, Todd Field has gone on to be a very successful director and I didn't realize that yeah. he started out as an actor and I thought he did a really good job with the role that he was given. So, so my, okay. my, my positive is I think the cast really did, uh, their, uh, did their roles justice. Okay. Well, we can say that, but I'm going to transition to the negatives and my main negative was Matthew Modine. And again, I'm not overly familiar with his stuff. I haven't mm-hmm. seen too many of his roles. I mean, he just turned up on Stranger Things the last couple yeah. of years. But this particular uh, character that he plays, Joe Slovak, I, I really thought it wasn't very well developed. Mm-hmm. And he was the, the note I had when I was watching the movie was that he was comically arrogant. And I, I couldn't tell if he was miscast or if the part just wasn't written to his mm-hmm. strengths. And I just thought he was way too cocky for a student. Yesterday, I asked you to name the structure supplied by the internal, internal thoracic artery. They are the thymus, the pleura. You don't have to name them. I asked you yesterday if you would be able to name them. You said you would. I believe you. Today, I want you to locate and identify the branches of the descending thoracic aorta. We didn't cover those in class, did we? You're still responsible for the information. Dr. Wood, if it hardly seems fair... Please, Mr. Reed. Well, I mean... Your colleague is trying to think. Please. Yes, ma'am. Go. The pericardial. The esophageals. The... Intercostals. How many pairs of intercostals? Nine. You guessing? Am I right? Yeah. Then I'm not guessing. 
I I am a huge fan of Matthew Modine. I will you know say that I if you haven't seen Bye Bye Love or Vision Quest, highly recommend them. Along with as I mentioned earlier, what the deaf boy heard. But but I'm with you. Like Matthew Modine is that like. I have in my notes, you know, is he smart or lazy? You know, what's the motivation? Because he comes in and he's like, oh, I don't I don't need to study as hard as everybody else. I read it. I, I remember it. And, you know, as this clip that we just heard plays out, like he's he's quizzed over something that he didn't know the day before. And, and Christine Lai's like, okay, will you know this tomorrow? And he's like, oh, yeah, definitely. But his character, yeah, I don't know what – is he just really smart or, yeah, you know, does he not care about med school? Cause that was my thing. Like he didn't seem to be going to med school and there's a whole thing at the beginning of the film, you know, like why, when he's being interviewed by prospective um, um, professors or, or colleges, like, why do you want to be a doctor? And, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I'm with you that I think his character, as much as I, you know, praise the other actors, I think his character did feel a little, uh, the motivation just wasn't there. Yeah. Oh no, totally. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's my, one of my biggest issues with this whole movie was that it was a little underwhelming in that regard. And that's why my next negative I had is that I thought this, I thought the script was a mess. I mean, and when you're dealing with five different writers touching on this and different script doctoring, um, I, I really, as you just said, the character motivations I thought were kind of pointless. There were several moments throughout the film where you're just like, why would they do that? Why would the characters act the way they do? You know, um, I thought I thought the love story between Matthew Modine and Daphne Zuniga was not really set up well hmm. enough to care. Like, I mean, there's there's a clever moment where he says something where she, she's jogging and he comes up alongside her and he says something like, well, I told everybody we were dating. So I got to make sure that it looks like <laughs> it or something like that. And you're just like, like I, and it kind of reminded me of like when we watched my science project where the girl in that hmm. movie, the one that Danielle von Zernick plays, God, I forget her character. When we got done watching the movie, my wife was like, why did she like? John Stockwell's character in my science project. He's like, I don't get it. And that's what we were watching this when she does, when, when they turn the corner and they end up making out and making love, mm-hmm. you find yourself going like, why does she like Joe? Like, I don't understand why Lo- her, the Lori character played by Daphne Zanini even likes him. Um, I thought that the attempts at comedy in this film all kind of fell, fell flat. Again, I don't know if that's just bad casting, not getting the right people. And I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I can't tell if the teachers were supposed to be evil and imposing or they were just knowledgeable, you know, like they should want the best from their students. But yet they end up being the antagonists of this film, you know, and I thought the students ended up being kind of total caricatures. I mean, you're talking about Todd Field's character, but it was I thought that was definitely like a stereotype, like, oh, the guy that's taking pills yeah. and is under the stress of his parents. And then you got the one guy who is the overachieving go getter who does, can't put up with Matthew Modine. And then you got the other girl who's pregnant. And then, of course, she's going to give birth in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just, yeah, I, I, that's what I thought. I thought the script was mm-hmm. just kind of all over the place and was a bit of a mess. No, I, I can see, I think all of those points are very valid. Um, yeah, and I just want to mention that Alice Carter played the pregnant student. Uh, I, I did not recognize her, but she is Key, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's love interest in Young Guns. So Ah, that's right, yeah. She's, she looked like she retired or something. She's got very few acting credits yeah. over the years. Yeah. But but to your point, I think, you know, the, the professors are pushing them because they want the best and they expect, you know, if, and then this is where I go with, like, you know, if you're going to be a medical practitioner or doctor, you need to know your stuff. Like, yeah. you know, other professions, yeah, you can skate by and just do enough to, to graduate. If you go to a doctor, you want them to know, you know, everything that they 
should have learned. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I can get that where they're just trying to push the students. But yeah, I mean, each character is a, you know, a type, you know, that if, if John Hughes was writing this, each character would have their, their stereotypical <laughs> caricatures. But, you know, the, okay. re- the relationship, like you said, when between Daphne Zuniga and Matthew Modine, he's very into her. And yeah, I don't think she's really into him that way. And so, you know, when they have the scene in the, in the hotel, which, or motel, which, you know, I question like, why were they all studying in a motel to begin with? Uh, that just seemed really, unless they, I could see that. Like unless, you want to get, if you want to get away, maybe, but, but yeah, they, it, well, I, I didn't feel the setup was really there, but then, yeah. you know, when everyone else leaves and she shuts the door and she's like, okay, you got me. I, th- I didn't take it as, okay, now we're in love. I thought it was more of a, let's say stress relief for her because then they don't really get together, you know, and she shows up yeah. with this other guy and, and, and I was really hoping, uh, minor spoiler for the end. I was hoping it was going to end with the, her, with, with Matthew Modi's character, just walking away. And oh, I think that would have okay. been better, but yeah, no, I'm with you. Uh, as far as the other negative that I have, there's a medical uh, file that Christine Lottie gives to Matthew Modine to review. And yeah. he comes up and he's like, oh, it's lupus. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I've watched too much house. There, it's never yeah. <laughs> lupus. That's, I mean, my wife's a big house fan. And so I mean, and she, when lupus came out, she's kind of snickered. I'm like, yeah, wasn't that, wasn't that the whole house thing with lupus? Yeah, it's never lupus. But, yeah, I mean, the only the only negative I had was that I thought that the direction was a little uneven. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a montage, like, really early in the film. But yet later in the film, there's a scene where Matthew Modine works as an orderly. Mm-hmm. And, like, his first day, I thought his first day would have been a better montage. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I can't complain about another another filmmaker's work in that regard like i thought there was a lot of moments where i'm just like oh i wouldn't have done that i didn't like that and it was you know like like you said the the group study scenes i thought those scenes probably should have gone on longer Hmm. i mean like we want to build up more of the chemistry between all of them and then they made it a point to where that motel that they studied at was like they said i think they said that was like an hour and a half away Hmm. So then later when the, the character gives birth, when they're they're all in the motel, they got like, oh, now we're now we're in the middle of nowhere. It was just some of those script conveniences. Yeah. And also, like, and I only noticed this when I was trying to pull clips um, from dialogue, is that the score for the film just kind of comes in at really awkward times. And it's really noticeable. Like, there'd be two characters talking, and the scene's not over yet. And all of a sudden, the score picks up while the character's still talking. It's just, it's, I don't think a score should be that noticeable. But, yeah, just all in all, just kind of an uneven direction. Yeah. That was all I had for negatives. Is there anything more, or do we just put our final, go to our final thoughts? Yeah, let's hit the reviews and the touchstone touch and all that. Let's just... Yeah. My it. final thoughts, I thought it was funny. If you want to just... If you want to sum up this movie in a, in a tagline, like in, in, in five words, it's simply Zach Morris at medical school. And that's what this was. It was just this guy who was just so comically mm. cocky who just thought he could fly by with medical school. And you don't really see the gist of it. I think that was what's funny. We talk about uh, Matthew Modine turning down the role in Top Gun. When that movie was over, all I could think about was that this Matthew Modine's part is the kind of part that Tom Cruise would have nailed in the mid 1980s and would have done, I thought would have done a much better job with it. I think the film was heavy handed and it had, like I said, those really trite dramatic scenes where, Oh, you got a pregnant character. Oh, she's going to give birth. Oh, and of course you're going to give birth and it's not in the hospital. And Matthew Modine's going to have to deliver the baby because he's the medical student and the star of the film. But that was what I, that was 
kind of eye rolling. Chad, do you have any mm. final thoughts on the film? Well, I do. But before I get to them, I'm going to go to the experts, as I, I like to do. Uh, Siskel and Ebert split on this film. Gene Siskel did not like it. Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs up on their television show. And this is taken from his uh, writ written review. He said, most of the major events in this movie can be anticipated, but they are played with a genuine grace. There is not much in this movie that hasn't been seen before, especially on TV medical medical shows. But the level of the direction by Tom Everhart gives the material more weight and importance, and the actors make their characters into particular people whose decisions begin to seem important to us. Agree to disagree, but go <laughs> ahead. And then uh, I found this interesting. I, I found a website called shortwhitecoats.com, and it looks okay. to be a medical professional who gives movie reviews on medical films. Okay. And so the one line that I took from his review is, this is an okay movie that might provide some entertainment once you've finished your gross anatomy dissections and need a few laughs. <laughs> so uh, to me, you you said you had not seen this movie before. No. I, I saw this movie when it came out on video. And, oh, wow. And okay. I remember watching it again a few years ago. And so I had hopes for it that, you know, that it would hold up. And I, I enjoyed the film, but, you know, everything you point out, I can understand you know, I, I don't have any di major disagreements with what you said. I, I think it's a personal taste aspect. And so, yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to say rush out and see this film, but if you have the choice between this and hello again, you would, <laughs> you know, do worse than watching gross anatomy. That's going to be the punchline <laughs> on this show from now on. Yes. Uh, well, on, on a scale of one to 10, I just came down with a four. I really thought it was you know, not the most likable characters and some very obvious drama, but I think Christine Lottie kind of helped to save the film. Uh, where do you come down? One to ten, Chad? I'm going to give it a six. Oh, okay. Just because I did I did enjoy it, and, and maybe because, you know, you said you're not familiar with Matthew Modine. I've said uh, I'm a big fan of his. Maybe the Modine factor yeah. plays a sure. role. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I generally enjoyed the film, and I, I would watch this movie again. You know, in a few months. I'm not going to rush out and watch it anytime soon, but... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I we kind of mentioned it, like, we usually like to look at what I call the touchstone touch to see, if, could this have been a Disney movie? Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some very minor sexual situations, barely any foul language. It's, it's rated PG-13. I mean, I, I think, like, it probably could have been a Disney film if they had played up the inspirational aspect of mm -hmm. Matthew Modine and his, and his uh, studies, you know? So, I mean, who knows? If it would have come out in the mid-2000s, Maybe it could have been a Disney film. Um, sequel or remake potential. To be honest, I would say there's a good story there. Go ahead and mm -hmm. remake this. I mean, I, I would I would probably focus less on the drama involving the professors mm -hmm. and then focus more on the love story. Like if you could flesh out that love story a little bit more and maybe make the make the other characters like his roommate and the other stu medical students he's dealing with, you make them less of caricatures hmm. i don't know it could be done it's been long enough it's been 30 years chad you could remake this movie right oh i think definitely i mean given you know how popular medical shows are this yeah. could definitely be you know and this could set up maybe this is the screenplay that i could use to launch my cinematic universe of copter lawyer <gasps> copter lawyer yes that would be you, know, you could see the, the beginning of the cop and then yeah. we got to find the the, the doctor, doctor and the lawyer and the yeah. lawyer yes yeah okay Ah, ah, I'll never forget Copter Lawyer. Okay, well, trivia on the film, I didn't really have a whole lot. Um, just a lot of it was kind of the casting choices. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. Uh, Matthew Modine's father is played by the actor J.C. Quinn, 
who we just saw a couple months earlier. He played the evil Walter in Turner and Hooch, the guy that runs the uh, fish plants mm. or whatever. With their, their pack, they're smuggling the heroin. Um, and then, like Chad mentioned, there's an opening montage with the different professors who were interviewing Matthew Modine to ask him why he wants to come to medical school. One of them was uh, Clyde Kusatsu, who was a great Asian American um, character actor. Like so he, he was just in Turner and Hooch. He played the guy that worked at the pet food store. He's done so many things. Uh, but the, one of the other interviewing professors was J. Patrick McNamara. And I looked him up just to see what all the different guys had been in. He played Bill, Bill's father in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Hmm. And as soon as I went back, I'm like, that's right. Yeah, that scene when he gives him the money to go because he's going to yeah. he's there. He's there with the stepmom. Yeah. And then of course, we got cameos by some other touchstone people, including Clyde Kusatsu. We've also got Max Perlick, who had a who was in Can't Buy Me Love. Yeah. And I was telling you, uh, you saw Char- Charles Fleischer has a cameo as well. You know, the voice of, of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Charles Fleischer plays one of the professors. But Max Perlick, I, I found it funny because. The the one student that we haven't mentioned in the study group is my the character Miles Reed. He's played by John Scott Clough, who I don't uh, again is an actor that I'm not familiar with. We but, just saw him in an episode of Amazing Stories. He played like we were the Amazing Stories, or you can watch him on the NBC app. Mm-hmm. And we just watched him. We were watching him in order. I think he's like in the second episode where he's like this really popular guy in high school, and then a meteor strikes, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden. He, he becomes magnetic, so all this metal stuff starts sticking to him. Hmm. And so I was like, that's so when we watched Gross Anatomy. I'm like, oh, that's the guy from Amazing Stories. That's all I know him from. But okay. yeah, go ahead, Chad. But his hairstyle in this film, <laughs> the, my first thought was, wow, the only other person I've seen, I think, in my lifetime with that hairstyle is Max Perlick. And then, you know, like 20 <laughs> minutes later, Max Perlick comes walking through as a cameo and Maybe yeah. they both got the hairstyle from the stylist on this movie. Maybe. Well, and then they, I mean, Max Perlick had trend. it in Can't Buy Me Love as Can't well. Can't Buy Me Love? Yeah. Okay. I think uh, I had Max Perlick's haircut when I was in high school, too. <laughs> that sort of high and tight flat top. Yeah. You know? um, but just after we did An Innocent Man, this is the second straight touchstone film that was shot in San Pedro. And I mentioned that because there's a, there's a shot where Matthew Modine's sitting on his front porch and you see this bridge in the background. And so your instinct is like, oh, okay, they're in San Francisco. Because they never really tell you what city they're in in this mm-hmm. entire movie. They never tell you where this medical school is located. Um, but that bridge, we kept thinking it was the Golden Gate Bridge. It's actually the Vincent Thomas Bridge in the background. That's in, that's in San Pedro near Long Beach. Uh, I mentioned we don't, say the, we don't say where the school is. It's called Chandler University. It looked a little bit familiar to my wife because it's USC where she works. Could this um, be more of an obvious medical school? <laughs> <laughs> to Nandler <laughs> being university. Um, okay, one other piece of trivia that I, I thought was interesting was it said there were 16 different cadavers that, cadavers that were created by medical professionals and special effects artists. Um, special effects artist was KNB. And I know I have a connection, Chad. I think you have a connection as well, but that's, mm. this is the great special effects. Uh, it's, KNB stands for the last names of the three guys, Kurtzman, Nicotero, and Berger. Um you said you were you familiar with Greg Nicotero or Howard Berger or one of that? What was the great? Are you familiar with K and B? Yeah, I am familiar with K and B. Greg Nicotero uh, came and spoke at Southern Illinois University, the college you and I attended, and uh, it, it was put on by the Student Programming Council, which the TV station was awesome that we worked at. The student television station was part of that too. So after, so we got to record his presentation, and then afterwards, he actually came up to the TV station and watched some of our student. Uh, productions and gave us tips on how to do some effects and uh, wow yeah so really nice guy um 
And that was 25 years ago. So if you ask him about it, he probably doesn't remember. But yeah. I, I know because he spoke at my college. I, I went to Northern Illinois University before I transferred to Southern where I met you. And Greg Nicotero spoke at, at Northern when I was up there. He was there because he had just done the special effects for the movie John Carpenter's Vampires. Mm. And so that was coming out that week in theaters. And so we saw him speak and a bunch of my friends were like, oh, let's go see vampires in the theater. Oh, damn you. <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, say, he, when he spoke for us, it was right before From Dust Till Dawn came out. Okay, and, okay. and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I was telling the studio, I'm going to go talk to these college students who are your target audience for this film. And they wouldn't let me bring any clips to show you. So, Oh, that's funny. And he brought a trailer, I think, for how, for the um, John Carpenter's vampires. Yeah. And he even brought like some props. He had the mm-hmm. Necronomicon yep. from the book, The Evil Dead. And yeah. then he had like the mouse from um, uh, Green Mile. He was working on oh, that. Nice. He, was sh- he was showing some of the effects that they had done for the electrocution scenes in green mile but they didn't even end up using the uh the the, the molds and the bodies yeah. that he had made yeah yeah t- totally tangent um he one of the other props he brought was a dog head like a doberman pincher okay and it was from a sega commercial for the sega genesis <laughs> and then nice. after after he pointed out i'm like okay i remember that commercial but yeah just a weird thing just, yeah I, as yeah. far as i know they're still out there doing it i don't know if king and b is still together if all three guys i think maybe one of them might have left but i think one of them left so, but yeah and i believe greg nicotero is a executive producer or producer on the walking dead now oh that's right yeah yeah it's one of the more prominent mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's it was just, it was just neat to see that name pop up in the credits you're like oh those guys yeah yes. um the last piece of trivia i have on the movie is matthew modine's those those scenes where he works as an orderly those were filmed at the queen of angels hospital which closed in 1989 and it was used as a filming location for several years before being turned into a church known as the Dream Center, which is known for helping drug addicts and homeless people. Uh, supposedly, uh, Tom Eberhardt was, was born in that hospital, you know, which I, uh-huh. I think I, that's what I, could, I found was weird was if you go on the IMDb trivia section for this movie, there's a bunch of stuff uh, written about Tom Eberhardt. And I can't tell if it's written by like a Tom Eberhardt super fan. And unfortunately, that fan's... Um, first language might not be english because it's a lot of broken english it was hard to decipher and i was wondering like where is all this trivia coming from because i couldn't find any interviews or articles about him turns out there was kino lorber released gross anatomy on blu-ray and there's a commentary with tom eberhardt and i'm only i'm thinking is that person must have listened to the commentary transcribed a bunch of it and threw it up on the imdb mm-hmm. trivia page because i mean i'd be curious to know i should probably you're the one that likes this movie more than me maybe we should get that dvd and maybe. or the blu-ray and listen to the commentary <laughs> uh yeah. The sound? Okay, well, look. Well, I have one, I have one oh, more piece. This isn't really trivia, but I don't see it listed in your rundown. So it's that Disney, you know, we always mention uh, Disney placement, if you will. Did you notice? Oh, yeah. uh, I think it's when Matthew Modine's f- first day as an intern, one of the extras walks by and she's wearing a Mickey Mouse sweater. Oh, I missed that. No. Yeah. Okay. Good Good catch. I did catch Coke. There's at least two or three, two or two or three scenes with Coca-Cola. God, I wish I would have been taking well, the frame grabs. Of well, all yeah, this. because yeah. Todd Field, that's what drives his character. Ah, no. there you go. The dumb, dumb. Uh, okay, I always like to see if there's a soundtrack for this movie. Mm-hmm. There was no official soundtrack, but it did have a lot of um, popular pop songs. I mean, we mentioned the Starship song, which is called "I'll Be There." It's such a great movie theme, closing credit movie thing. Um, for the first time since. Tin Man, I guess, in a Touchstone movie. We get the Fine Young Cannibals with uh, She Drives Me Crazy. I think that went to number one around that time. Um, there's also uh, a cover of the song Blue Moon by the Cowboy Junkies. As we mentioned, uh, the, the Doris Day song that we use, which is called If I Give My Heart to You. 
again, in that IMDb trivia section, I don't know if this is coming from Tom Eberhardt's uh, commentary track, but supposedly the studio wanted to use a Beastie Boys song during the scene at the diner where the Kim character gives birth, but Tom Eberhardt wanted Doris Day, and so he paid for the the clearance, the licensing rights of that Doris Day song, and they used that instead of the Beastie Boys, which... On the one hand, it, it works. On the other hand, I'm like, man, if it would have been the Beastie Boys, 1989, probably would have been something from Paul's Boutique. Oh, man, it would have been a great song. <laughs> All right. Um, let's look at the box office. As we mentioned, it opened in October. It opened at number five with $2.8 million. Uh, first place that week was Look Who's Talking, which that was first place many, <laughs> many weeks. I can remember trying to see that in the theater a couple of times, and it was sold out the first few times I went to see it. Uh, the other films that opened against... Gross Anatomy um, was Next of Kin, which finished second at the box office, and Fat Man and Little Boy, which is the Paul Newman movie involving, um, it's all about the Manhattan Project, building mm-hmm. the hydrogen bomb. Um, in the second week, Gross Anatomy drops to number seven with the release of the films The Bear and also Shocker, the Wes Craven movie that I absolutely love. Um, and then with each successive week, it continues to get bumped down the charts as we see the releases of films such as uh, Phantom of the Opera with Robert England. Uh, Second Sight, written by Dead Poet Society writer Tom Shulman. And then a movie called Staying Together that I'm not familiar with. That's Sean Astin and Daphne Zuniga. Mm. Do you know that one? I would have to look that up. I, I, it yeah. doesn't, nothing sparks right uh, you know, off the top of my head. Yeah, and then we also have the wide release of uh, Woody Allen's films Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, Gross Anatomy leaves theaters after a month. It only makes $11.6 million on a budget of $8.5 million. So, uh not really probably what Disney was hoping for and also what not what Disney was not hoping for for them an awards consideration mm-hmm. standpoint there are none like I, I can't find anything for no this. Nick Choice Award or Nick Kids Awards or young no, comedians I, I, I guess not um, I always like to look at some if there's connections to other franchises I love I could find no Alfred Hitchcock connection I'm they're starting to run out of those um, but there is a James Bond connection Howard Rosenman in 2002, he produced the documentary Bond Girls Are Forever, which I actually own that on DVD. It came out around the same time as Die Another Day, and it's a hour-long documentary about uh, all the women who starred in the Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a personal connection. I mean, Chad, Chad and I, we both mentioned that we've, we saw Greg Nicotero speak. I mean, I think we talked about it on our Can't Mind Me Love episode. We've seen Max Perlick at that Q&A. And, then, of course, we've talked to Charles Fleischer. Uh, Chad has listened to his, uh, Charles Fleischer's daughter's band on several occasions. Um, but I really don't have uh, a whole lot else on this movie, unless you have anything else, Chad. Uh, no, I think we have exhumed this cadaver as much as we can. you have any idea what you've done to him? Uh, Dean Torrance. This is Joe Slovak. He's David Schreiner's roommate. Do you have any idea what you've done to him? Well, I think that we... No, it's all right. I think we acted in Mr. Schreiner's best interests. He's human. Not superhuman, just human. He did what he thought he had to do because he wanted to be a, a doctor more than anything else in the world, and you ruined that for him. The fact is, Mr. Slovak, wanting to be a doctor doesn't mean one should be a doctor, right? Huh. And, and, and who decides who should and shouldn't be a doctor? You? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you're always right, aren't you? Mr. Slovak, I'm not quite clear how all this concerns you, but I do know you owe Dr. Woodruff here an apology. No, no. It's okay. Now, he will apologize. 
Take it easy. What are you going to do, invite me to leave? Huh? Don't bother. I left five minutes ago. Please, consider what you're doing. I already have. Well, we've dissected the anatomy as much as we can, but now let's move to the living anatomy, the anatomy of a would-be burlesque superstar who falls in love with the governor of the great state of Louisiana, as we said in the intro. This is Blaze. Academy Award winner Paul Newman is Governor Earl K. Long. What about that striptease dancer? Now that's a damn lie. It's a damn lie. Damn lie. That. Find a bunch of yes men ever assemble. Yes, sir. Now we got to talk some sense into him before he flushes the entire Democratic Party right down the crapper. What are you scared of? Scared of losing you. They have fell in love with a striptease dancer. Well, they're right. I'm guilty. Forced to choose between the office he held. You still love me if I wasn't a fine governor of the great state of Louisiana. And the woman he loved. You still love me if I was flat chest and worked in a fish house. He chose both. Play star. You better get used to her. Never trust a man who says trust me. Can I trust you? Hell no. What a wonderful thing to say. Blaze. Something I gotta confess. What's that? I can't cook. We'll work around it. Yes, released on December 13th of 1989, Blaze. Uh, it, was, it was based on the memoir called Blaze Star, My Life as Told to Huey Perry, which was published in 1974. Uh, the writer-director Ron Shelton bought the rights to the book in 1983 and wrote a script based on it, as well as conducting, he also conducted interviews with the real Blaze Star. Um, Ron Shelton was an up-and-coming uh, great filmmaker. I enjoy a lot of his work. He had two mid-1980s writing credits, which were films that were both directed by Roger Spottiswood, who we said his name a lot on our show. Uh, there was a movie in 1983 called Under Fire, and then in 1986, the movie The Best of Times, which I think we talked about that one earlier. Maybe it was up against one of the Touchstone movies in the box office. Um, apparently, Ron Shelton could not get Blaze made until he did his 1983, 88, excuse me, 1988 breakthrough movie, Bull Durham which was his, his directorial debut, and he also wrote it. He got an Oscar nomination and won the Writers Guild Award. And I think we've heard this story so many times, right, where you got this guy, he's got this idea, can't really get it going, and all of a sudden he has one movie that blows up, and then all of a sudden everyone wants to work with him, right? And so Bull Durham is still probably my favorite sports movie, and uh, I, I could see why that would get him more work. What's interesting is there were two actors in Blaze, uh, Garland Bunting, who, who plays Doc Faraday. He was the... He plays the radio play-by-play announcer in Bull Durham. And then, of course, we got Robert Wool coming back to Touchstone after Good Morning Vietnam. He was in Bull Durham, and he's also in Blaze, reteaming with Ron Shelton. Uh, of course, we're just, we have two main cast members to look at, and that is Paul Newman, who we just mentioned. He had a legendary career going back to the, to the 1950s. He had won a Best Actor Oscar for The Color of Money, which Touchstone released in 1986. And as I just talked about, he only had one movie between Color of Money and Blaze, and that was Fat Man and Little Boy, which came out on October 20th, the same day as Gross Anatomy. I remember that movie vaguely. I, I, I have a picture of, of Paul Newman wearing like a military outfit with a mustache, but never saw it. Chad, do you, do you know Fat Man and Little Boy, or have you seen that one? I've not seen it because when it came out, it did not appeal to me, and, but I am familiar with it. And yeah, actually researching uh, this movie, I 
it was referenced on the Siskel and Ebert show, and uh, they did not have kind things to say about it. So it's probably oh, really, yeah. Uh, that sounds like a kind of movie that might be interesting to learn a little about what was going on with the, uh, like I said, the atomic mm-hmm. bomb. Uh, and of course, we got we got to cast Blaze, and so uh, Lolita Davidovich, she comes back to Touchstone. I forgot that she has a very small part in Adventures in Babysitting. I think yeah. if you look her up in the credits, it just says blonde. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if she's someone at a party or at the bus station. I, I'd have to go back mm-hmm. and watch that one. Um, she had very minimal acting career to this point. Lots of bit parts. Most of them were in these somewhat exploitative type movies, straight to video titles such as The Big Town, where she plays a stripper, and then another one called Blindside. Again, I've never heard of any of these. Uh, her most previous on screen credit before Blaze was an episode of Friday the 13th, the series, which I actually watched that <laughs> show. I did. I liked the TV show more than the movie because it had nothing to do with there was no masked hockey killer no. or hockey, hockey mask wearing killer, I guess. Um, but supposedly Lolita Davidovich had beaten out 600 other actresses for the role of Blaze Star, which uh, included Sean Young and also Melanie Griffith. I've heard conflicting reports. I've heard Melanie Griffith turned down the part. I've heard that Lolita Davidovich beat her out for the part. I don't know. Uh, but what I thought was interesting was we've mentioned that she's had these bit parts in these other movies. But in the trailer for Blaze, it says, quote, introducing Lolita Davidovich. But I also read something, I think it was on the AFI's website, that said that, she, that Lolita Davidovich herself was a stripper. I, I can't mm. seem to find anything else to, to verify that, but, yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, well, let's just look at positives well, and wait, negatives. Wait, wait, wait oh, a go minute. Ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh-oh. Wait a well, minute. Oh, that I, I, think I, know what I, I think I know what I missed out on, go ahead, you, you mentioned Robert Wool, who's in the movie for, like, ten minutes, but you did not... You know, you you call Richard Dreyfus the king of Touchstone. You you skipped over the prince of Touchstone, as I am going to call him. Gaylord Sartain is in this film. Yes, making this I, his third Touchstone film, I believe, at this point. I was going to mention him because I was going to save him for one of my positives, but yes, oh, okay. Well, I, I guess well, you know what? Let's just we'll just go right into that then. I think one of my biggest positives in this movie is that it has a great supporting cast. I mean, mm. Richard Jenkins plays the uh, newspaper reporter. Mm. Uh, and as you said, Gaylord Sartan is one of... Uh, Huey, it's Earl Long. Paul Newman plays the governor, Earl Long. And he has this group of yes-men that just follow him around. And Gaylord Sartan is fantastic. I, I, I really wish there would have been more scenes with them to see the inner workings mm. of, of that political machine. And, you know, and like I mentioned Robert Wool. I know you're not a big fan of him. I can kind of take him or leave him. But in this movie, he's really good because he's a total scumbag. And he does a really great job of that. So, yeah, my first positive is the great supporting cast highlighted by the Prince of Touchstone, (laughs) Gaylord Sartain. Uh, Yeah, and for those of you who maybe this is your first episode of Out of Touchstone or don't remember who Gaylord Sartain is, he is in all the Ernest movies as someone that Ernest never interacts with he's just got his own cutaway shots of goofiness um, yeah he was on hee-haw and yeah he i think he's he was yeah. in some of the se hinton yeah. he, he, he's friends with se hinton so he's like he's in the outsiders and some mm. of her movies but you uh hit me with a positive chat from blaze what did you what do you got um yeah i i mean i think the cast is really good i i, I think this is an interesting story on politics because we i'm gonna steal actually one of your politics one of your positives now that i look at it it's you see how the political climate worked or how the political indwellings worked. And, you know, that's something you don't see a whole lot 
or at least I can't think of a lot of films off the top of my head that, that show how it all, like, you know, dealing with, with Earl Long's character, how he dealt with the press and the integration or desegregation that he was trying to propose and how he would work people against each other. So that will be my, my, my one positive of this film. Well, Reverend Marquette, we're just on our way. I got this fine speech prepared here. A speech, Governor? Yeah. I mean, as you all know, I'm 100% for homestead exemptions, and I'm 100% for farm-to-market roads, facilities for the feeble-minded. I believe in building bridges over all rivers, large and small, and uh, hot lunches. And hot air. What? I said hot lunches and hot air, Governor. My son needs a lesson in manners, Governor. But I am in accordance with the essence of his remarks. We don't need no more speeches. We need jobs. Well, we got some fine highway jobs. Just call LaGrange. He'll take care of it. Highway jobs? Oh, you talking about picking up trash. <laughs> this man's a doctor. And these women are all qualified nurses. So we done picking up trash. Uh, Mr. Governor, we voted for you, and we voted for your brother before you, but that don't mean you got our vote forever. Well, trust in God. He'll work out everything. No, we talked to God. He told us to speak to the governor. <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing at, Picky? You? We're just all real curious as to know how you're going to manage to desegregate the hospital system at the same time keep all your fine white voters happy. We're just so curious. Yeah, I, I was surprised by a lot. You know, you talk about whenever you're dealing with a political movie, there's always going to be like hot button issues. I didn't realize that the hospitals were still segregated like that. And mm-hmm. when you when I this is one of, one of those movies. I don't know about you, Chad, but as soon as it's over, you find yourself rushing to Wikipedia <laughs> to see like how much of this was real. Yeah, I want to learn more about Earl Long because it sounds like he did a lot of stuff with, like you said, desegregation, which made him more of a populist governor he got a lot of the black vote because he was trying to make sure that they could get their voting rights i think that was one of the parts of the movie that my wife kind of cringed at was that there's a very heavy use of the n-word in this movie that is my first negative yeah which i think is probably maybe that's just indicative of that era i mean if you want to be if you want to show a movie of that era i guess if you want to show it kind of warts and all but but like you said it was interesting to see the inner workings of of that political climate. I, mm. I, I, that's where I like political movies and in that regard. And I think this movie probably would have been a little bit better if they would have shown a little bit more of that and maybe a little less of Blaze. I mean, I think the only other positive that I had from the movie was kind of like Gross Anatomy and even Dead Poet Society is that it's really cool to see a bygone era, you know, like something we just we just don't have. And and it's it's got some great location photography. You know, I, I like that I, I get to see Louisiana in the 1950s. And, and I guess there's some scenes set in West Virginia. Uh, I, I read that they shot some stuff in the Smoky Mountains, you know. And I think what's interesting is, like, the opening credits kind of set up that slower pace of life. Like, it's just these sweeping scenes of the mountains and this sort of Southern Americana folky music. But, yeah, it's 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 a totally different era that you, I guess, you don't necessarily get to see depicted on screen. Definitely not a lot in 1989. <laughs> I don't remember seeing a lot of period pieces set yeah. in the 50s south i mean you got to go back to like uh to kill a mockingbird but that was almost modern when it came out it seems like but um if you got anything more positives or we just go to our negatives uh, yeah i'm just gonna roll what what you just said and go into my negative yeah my my first negative is 
I, you know, I can understand the era in which this movie takes place and everything, but you mentioned it. The use of the N word is just, I, I found it jarring and I'm not one to really, you know, prickle that much at, at words other than, except when they are done excessively, like we've mentioned in uh, three fugitives and the, all the swearing oh, that's in that, oh, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just like, okay, but I, I get that. It's probably authentic to the time frame of which the movie is made, which I, I actually, you know, on one hand can appreciate that they didn't try to clean it up and make it more sanitized for the the current uh, society. But yeah. but yeah, it was just, you know, it, you know, the first time you're like, OK, by like the 20th time, you're like. All right. Yeah. And yeah. again, and I, you know, it's maybe it's just one thing I like. I guess in watching movies like this though, is it helps re um, kind of, kind of, kind of show us how far we have gone in some ways and also yeah. how far we haven't gone in other ways. So maybe this is a, a mixed review. It's, it's bad that, you know, used so oftenly, but at least we can say, well, things are getting better, right? Kind of. Yeah. Maybe? It's weird. It's, I mean, that was, that was kind of where you, 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 you shake your head a little bit because you're like, that was just six, that was just 60 years ago. Yeah. You know? And you're like, that's kind of what, yeah. But I guess, okay. Well, from a movie standpoint, I mean, the negatives that I had, I, I really thought it was, the the comedy was uninspired. Mm -hmm. I I really thought that they would, they were either playing up like the cynical and disingenuous nature of politicians. I mean, there's a scene where there there were blaze and Earl long in the backseat of the car. And, and, and she, she makes some comment about how like, Oh, we're both in show business or whatever. You know, or they used a lot of cheap jokes about like this old horn dog making mm-hmm. love to a younger woman, and he's just like, "Oh, I'm gonna make love with my boots on and stuff." Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. They they played up the comedy, but I just didn't think it was all that funny, honestly. I mean, I they made it sound like when you watch some of the trailers and TV spots, like it's this oh hilarious rip roaring comedy. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't very funny. No, and I I mean that my second negative that I have written down is the story didn't have any life. I just. Yeah. You know, listening to a recent episode where we talked about Three Fugitives and you mentioned like the last 15 minutes you had checked checked out and, you know, we were just kind of listening. I would say the last 45 minutes of this movie, I'm just like, what what is the point of this film? Like where where mm. who am I supposed to be rooting for? What am I supposed what am I supposed to care about? And I just I, I didn't I felt nothing for this movie. No, I could totally understand that, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, I I felt very similar i mean i i think i mean my wife kind of checked out at one point like she was had the phone out and i'm like no no i'm gonna keep watching um my, my other issue like from a negative standpoint i had this as two separate negatives but i'll combine them together and it was the two the two leads hmm. i mean I, I love paul newman but i i really feel like he was miscast i i did not like him in that part i read something that said that supposedly paul newman had left the project for a brief period and that gene hackman was considered hmm. i mean i'm not sure who would have been better i just Paul Newman is a fantastic actor, but not in that role. I, mm. his, his, the, the accent they gave him was yeah. very distracting. It was hard to understand because it was like mumbling, you know. And I, when I was pulling the clips from the movie, I, I, I will say I forgot to mention this: with both Gross Anatomy and Blaze, you can stream both of these films on Hoopla, which is the streaming service through the public library. And so I had opened up the Hoopla website, and I'm pulling clips, and the subtitles had turned on. And there were there were lines of dialogue that I'm like, oh, that's a clever line. But I don't remember hearing mm-hmm. that line when I was watching the movie. I'm like, that's a great zinger or a good little in joke that I totally missed. 
And then what was what was worse is there were definitely some several several scenes where Paul Newman was overacting really bad. Like, I mean, I know this Earl Long character is supposed to be larger than life, but he kind of went over the top. And then starring opposite him, you have Lolita Davidovich, and she's a fine actress, but I just didn't quite buy her in that part. You know, I thought for such a showy role, I thought she was just okay. She did, you know. She's supposed to be this stripper burlesque dancer, but I didn't think she looked very comfortable on stage during those scenes. Like, and you know, at first I thought that maybe that's supposed to be intentional, and, you know, as that maybe that's going to improve as her career takes off. But I just, it just didn't look right. It just looked like an actress up on stage pretending to be an exotic dancer, and I, and I just, I didn't quite buy it. And it's a shame because, like I said, I know she's good. I know Paul Newman is good, but in these both of them, I think you could have made, remade this movie with a different leads and it would have been probably much better better well the the last negative that i have is and i i agree with you in the in those parts because paul paul newman's accent is i i'm not one i'm not a big person on accents like you know everybody complains about kevin costner and robin hood prince of thieves and his accent coming and going never noticed it but paul newman is like his accent is hit or miss most of the time but Mm -hmm. the last thing for me, you know, I when when I watch a movie that is based on real people, I don't expect one hundred percent one hundred percent authenticity, but give me at least like seventy five to eighty percent. And like you said, after this was over, I went and looked up Earl Long. I watched a hour long documentary on him from nineteen eighty five that was done by PBS. There's so much that was left out, and and I can understand the storytelling or the cinematic license to make the story more streamlined, but. Uh, this movie, if you're looking for a, uh, you know, a accurate representation of Earl Long and, and blaze star, this is not the movie to watch. No, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that was like my final thoughts on the film. I just, I really thought again, it took a lot of liberties and unfortunately they, they just tried to make it too funny. And Mm -hmm. what ends up happening is it's the movie is too ridiculous to drive home the message. And I mean, in a way, this this it was a political. The political drama was so much more interesting, and I think the movie would have been better on the whole if Blaze would have been the supporting character. Yeah. Make a movie about Earl Long. Now, again, this this came about because uh, Blaze's memoir got in the hands of Ron Shelton, and he said, "Oh, it's a good movie. Let's make it about her." I don't think she's that interesting of a character. Mm-hmm. And plus, like you said, there's so much um, falsehoods about like what yeah. happened when. Like, did you know that Blaze and Earl Long were both married when they yeah. met? Like they don't even they don't even mention spouses in this movie, mm. you know. And so if you would have made this movie as like even if it was I don't care if it's two and a half hours, make a nice long epic movie about the long where you introduce Blaze at the end of the first act, you know, spend the first half hour setting up Earl Long and his history and his family and and that whole dynasty because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would love to know more about it because I I went down a huge rabbit hole looking up Earl Long and Huey mm. Long and all that stuff, but like. If you just make her a like a strong supporting character through the second act of the film, mm-hmm. I thought it would have been a lot better. But instead, when you make, but it's her perspective. It's her, it's a movie told about based on her book, yeah. and that's unfortunately that's what you're going to get. So yeah, I don't know. And, I, and I think you know, in regards to her, from what I've read too, the when she met the Robert Rule character and he talks her into stripping, she was only 15 years old. So you want to talk about a character who's a scumbag? Okay, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, there's stories about, like, supposedly she claims that she had a fling with John F. Kennedy. Kennedy. Yeah, him and him and Jackie came to one of her shows or something mm-hmm. like that. And, like, 
okay, maybe it's an interesting movie, but like I said, Earl Long is so much more fascinating the character. Yeah. And it shows, and I think the filmmakers even knew that, because did you notice, did, I don't know if you made it, if you get to all the way to the end of the credits, there is actual audio of Earl Long. Hmm. And it's, I don't know if it's trying to, if it's if it's supposed to copying one of the scenes that happened in the film that they, that they filmed, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, but it's just like, yeah, he's mumbling and stuff, but you're like, I think this movie could have been much better if it was more about Earl. Um, the, like I said, we talked about the touch, don't touch. Well, this movie's R rated. So there's really no way to tell this story in a softer way because of Blaze's background. Like this is, this is Disney taking a chance on something that they would not otherwise be able to do. And, and I can give them credit. Sure. Make it a touchstone film. Um, before we do our reviews, Chad, do you have any reviews on the film itself? I do. I have the esteemed Roger Ebert up first. And he says, Blaze is the affectionate story of two colorful people who had the nerve to stick together even though they didn't suit everybody's notion of propriety. Whether it tells the whole story of the relationship is an open question. I imagine Blaze Starr could write a second volume of her autobiography if she had mine to, but this is a movie made up of feelings and moments and not a work of political history. So pretty much okay. agrees with us. And then the Washington Post reviewer Rita Kipley said, Blaze is Shelton's celebration of politics before television, of the days when private gaffes meant less than public misdeeds, when, poli- when politics was hands-on, fleshy as stripping, not, impersonal, Im- not impersonable as pornography. Like Shelton's last film, Bull Durham, this one is colorful as an opening day crowd, and like Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon, Newman and the Nubile Davidovich make a crackerjack couple. I agree to disagree. Agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then, uh, so then, where do you come down on uh, between one and ten, Chad? Oh, this one, I, I'm going to give it a three, just because I did like parts of it. It's not, you know, it, but th- this is a movie that I will never probably watch again. And if someone asks, name your top fifty Touchstone movies to to recommend that I should watch, probably not going to be in that top fifty list. But uh, sure. But it's got Garland Sartain, so I'll go with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I was just saying, like, just like Gross Anatomy, I'm, I'm giving this a four. Uh, it was, I thought it was a very uneven story. It lacked mm-hmm. focus. It was cleverly written, but I didn't care for the leads. And like you said, th- although there was a strong supporting cast. And that's why if you, we go into uh, sequel or remake potential, I would think, yes, yes, make, <laughs> make this movie again, but make Earl Long the focus of the film and have Blaze be the character that shows up halfway through it. You know, and then you, if you, what you could probably do is make the comedy take a back seat to the drama, where the the jokes might land a little bit better if it's more of a dramatic film. Whereas this one is sort of presented as a comedy film, and like I said, not quite that funny. Yeah. Um, from a trivia standpoint, I think it's the most popular piece of trivia on the film is that the real Blaze star does appear in a cameo. There's a scene where Paul Newman walks backstage at the strip club and kisses her on the shoulder. I read that she had served as a consultant on the film and earned 4% of the profits. But as we're going to get into with the box office, I don't know how many <laughs> profits there were. Um, I, you, you know, um, Lolita Davidovich would go on to star in the 1994 film Cobb, which was written and directed by Ron Shelton. And then in 1997, the two would get married. And she has since appeared in a few more of his films, including uh, there's one film for Touchstone in 1999 that the two make together. Um, uh, the soundtrack itself, it looks like there, there was an official soundtrack release, but it consisted mostly of the score by Benny Wallace. And there's also some folk and Americana music of the, area, of the era by Bonnie Sheridan, 
and Hank Williams Sr. Uh, not on the soundtrack is a great song by Fats Domino and also another really good song by Randy Newman called Louisiana 1927. And that was one of the ones I was almost considering for our opening credits. I think it plays at the very beginning of the end credits. It's just like Randy Newman, and it's not a Pixar movie. But maybe that's the beginning of his relationship with Disney, I guess. Um, oh, so let's look at the box office. Like I said, it comes out during the Christmas season. It opens on a Wednesday, and it finishes ninth with only $1.7 million. Uh, first place that week was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, the other films that opened were uh, Family Business, uh, We're No Angels, and also The Wizard with Fred Savage, which I saw that in the theater. So that's why I missed Blaze. I saw The Wizard instead. Uh, you also had limited openings that week for two of the big Oscar movies that year, Driving Miss Daisy and Glory. Um, throughout the Christmas and New Year's Eve holidays, uh, Blaze remains in the top ten with with other films opening, such as the Steven Spielberg movie Always, and also my one of my favorite buddy cop movies ever, Tango and Cash. Um, it slowly falls out of the charts in January with the release of such films as Born on the Fourth of July, Internal Affairs, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Ski Patrol, and one of Chad's favorite movies, Tremors. All-time classic. Uh, yes. Uh, but Blaze ultimately leaves theaters with only $19.1 million and on a budget of $22 million. So, yeah, I don't know what kind of profits Blaze Star got as a consultant. But, hey, as a, from an awards consideration, it did okay. Uh, uh, it gets an Oscar nomination for the Best Cinematography by the legendary Haskell Wexler. He it loses to the film Glory, but he does win the American Society of Cinematographers Award for Best Cinematography. Lolita Davidovich is nominated for the Most Promising Actress at the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, which she loses to Laura San Giacomo in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I thought it was interesting. For the most promising actress, you had Lita Davidovich and Laura San Giacomo. The other nominees, Annette Bening, Julia Roberts, and Winona Ryder. Uh, Whatever happened to them? Yeah, so interesting. Um, I I, I didn't see a James Bond connection with this movie, but just as I was ready to to, uh, write it off, there is, of course, an Alfred Hitchcock connection. Paul Newman has starred in uh, Torn Curtain. And then the, the actor, Jerry Hardin, who plays one of, uh, Earl Long's Yes Men, Thibodeau. He had appeared in a 1985 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Uh, from a personal connection standpoint, I think I mentioned it on our Three Fugitives episode, but I met Haskell Wexler uh, at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica and got him to autograph uh, my DVD of a film he shot called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And then I'm pretty sure, Chad, you were with me in 2011. On my birthday, Ron Shelton did a Q&A at the Aero as well in Santa Monica for a screening of Bull Durham. And Again, Bull Durham, my favorite sports movie. I love Ron Shelton because he had played minor league baseball, and I wanted to see it. was one of the Q&As that I was so excited to see, and I came out of it loving him even more because he mentioned that he, when he was a minor league baseball player, he his film school was going to the movies because he played in Texas, and he said, Texas in the summertime, it's so hot that you would go to the movies and matinees just to get into an air-conditioned building, and the movie that inspired him to want to go into filmmaking was the movie that inspired me to go to film school, which is Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. So, yeah, that's our personal connection. Uh, real quick, Mike, uh, according to my calculations here, Blaze Star's 4% uh, profit participation, I believe she still owes Touchstone $80,000. The ongoing 
gripping story of a long family dynasty in Louisiana continues to add more bizarre chapters as former Governor Earl K. Long attempts a pathetic bid for election to national office rocked by a scandalous affair with a famous exotic dancer, Long has mounted a well, campaign with no visible backing What's the matter? usual party sources. You want to look? The All right, take a look. To a huh? this year. Take a real look. Well, if I was crazy then, I'm crazy now. And I'm going to be crazy for the rest of my life. Say I fell in love with a striptease dancer. Well, they're right. I'm guilty. Thank you, sweetie. They say I raise taxes. They're right. I am guilty. They say I built bridges and hospitals and roads. They're right. I'm guilty. They say Louisiana got the best old age pension in the United States of America. They're right. I'm guilty. Then they say I fought the poll tax and the reading list so that everybody in the country could vote. Right. Guilty, guilty, and guilty. So in conclusion, uh, again, we've got two movies. I, I, I thought they were a little underwhelming, but at the same time, I'm, I'm impressed that Disney made them. You know, they're two movies that I didn't think that they, they would have been able to make without having Touchstone. The, I, I like that they made a movie about medical students. And they made a movie about the political climate of the 1950s. I just wish they could have been a little bit better. I mean, do you think these stand up with, uh, like I said, do you think Disney should be proud of these two, Chad? Gross Anatomy, yes. Blaze, no. Okay, but you know, there's a movie that they should be proud of, which was Little Little Mermaid. I always like to look and see what movies this Walt Disney Pictures released during the same time period. And of course, the probably one of the greatest pieces of Disney animation ever, Little Mermaid, opened on November 17th of 1989. I thought it was interesting. It never tops the box office charts for any particular weekend, but it stayed in the top 10 for two months and it ultimately grossed $84.3 million in a four month run and ends up 13th at the year-end box office. So, yeah, as we're going to discuss on our future episodes, this is going to be the beginning of the Disney renaissance, which, like I said, we're going to see another studio come out of uh, another Disney shingle, and also uh, just more animated movies and more live-action movies from Disney. So we'll discuss those and more. Um, For our next episode, uh, we had a little fun with it on the last year, so why not do it again this this year? For 1989, Chad and I are both going to hand out our Ronnie Awards, where we're going to... We'll look at the, our favorite uh, performances and films and some surprises and disappointments from the Touchstone slate of 1989. So, uh, Chad, do you have anything else you want to mention before we say goodbye? I don't think so, Mike. I think we've, we've done all we can, and I am just looking forward to turning that calendar page and, and starting off 1999 with the queen of Touchstone. So we'll have the queen, king, and... And Prince, all referenced in this episode. <laughs> 1999? Or 19, well, maybe I want to get to 1999, because you know what movie comes out that year? Armageddon. That's what I'm looking for. That's all the show has been leading up to. Spoiler. But yes, 1990. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening again. And this is Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter, at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account, at Out of Touchstone. If you want to shoot me an email, it's touchstone at gmail.com. 
my co-host Chad Smart. You can find him on Twitter as well, at Chad Smart. He's also the proprietor of the Positive Cynicism Podcasting Network, the hashtag PCPN. So once again, thanks for listening. This is Out of Touchstone, and we are out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.